Having traveled to Albania for almost 20 years, I am amazed at how incredibly this country has changed in 20 years. Uh, when we first went there, communism had just fallen, and Albania had been the most closed country in the world. They were cut off from all other countries being an independent communist country. And um, when I first went there, we lost some of the members of the party in Budapest, and I didn't know how to get a hold of anybody. There was one phone in the city of 100,000 people. It was at the post office. Well, now when you go there, everyone has a cell phone. They're all texting. They're all on Facebook. It looks more like a Western European city than it used to. They're seeking to join the European Union. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And Laura and Mary Kay, who last had been there in, in, to Albania in 1999, uh, you know, were more amazed than I was because they had seen it before and seen it now. Well, as I think about that, I realize that, you know, I, I live in a country that has changed just as dramatically, but it hasn't changed as dramatically outwardly. It seems that today, to the surprise of many people, uh, there are very serious objections to the Christian faith and even accusations that are being made publicly in a way that 20 years ago would have been unheard of. It seems that secular thinking has spawned a whole generation of strident atheists who feel emboldened to, to attack religion in general and Christianity in particular in a very direct way in the classroom, and the television, and the radio. And in addition to that, there are a number of issues that are prominent in our society right now that have to do with sexual morals, and um, medical ethics and all kinds of things to which the Bible speaks very clearly, but many people don't want to hear it, and the Christian faith is being marginalized. If you listen to the radio or television, you might uh, feel easily on the defensive at times when it comes to these issues. When they're, when they're brought up, uh, often the way the question is asked or the conversation is, is posed is a way that just seems to invite an argument. Now, they say, isn't it true that you Christians discriminate against people? Isn't it true that you think everyone should live according to the dictates of your religion? What makes you different than the Taliban? And uh, most of us, when we hear things like that, we find it difficult to think of having any real dialogue with people about this. But the fact is, we face these kind of questions in various ways within our families, more broadly speaking in the neighborhood at times, at the workplace. Th these are issues that are being brought up a lot of times. And often when I listen to these things on television or the radio, I, I feel like the people that are presented as spokespersons for the Christian perspective sometimes just seem too weak or intimidated to say anything that will ruffle anybody's feathers. And so they don't say anything of real value. Or they're so angry and bombastic and demanding that the things that they say are so inflammatory that it doesn't lead to any real discussion. And this morning I want to ask, how should we, how can we respond in a situation where the, the very validity of our beliefs, of the teaching of the Bible, is being questioned so broadly, where things are being said about Christianity that are not true, they're just a caricature of what we think or how we want uh, to live. Our children are growing up in this world, and I found even though my children are older now, 
they would come home and ask questions. And they were good questions, but often they were posed in such a way to tell me that they had they'd been influenced by people that were describing Christianity in a certain way. And, and if it's not our children, it's other people. The, the idea is that our faith is radical, extreme, discriminatory. It, it's brought up in such a way that it doesn't promote understanding. How do we respond to that? Well, I want to think about that from the two passages we've referred to this morning. First, where I began in Jesus' words, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And then these words that Mary Kay just read to us, where the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, and and he said that as a Christian worker, as a Christian, he should uh, be able to teach correcting your opponents with gentleness. These passages promote a certain understanding of what it is we ought to be doing in relationship with people to help them. Now, 2 Timothy was written to a young co-worker of the Apostle Paul's named Timothy. It's a letter of encouragement, of instruction about how to fulfill certain responsibilities that he'd been given and so forth. And we wish we know what Timothy was, but we really don't. Uh, Some people think he was a pastor, but that word is never used of him or used to describe him. Other people think he was an elder, but again, that word is not used to describe him. Although he was appointed by Paul to appoint elders in the various churches that Paul had recently started, it seems that he was just fulfilling them as, as an emissary of Paul's responsibility as a church planter. Some people think he was a bishop, but that's like applying something from much later in history, an idea, an office, to a time when it didn't exist. But all we can really say of Timothy is that he was a trusted member of the Apostle Paul's ministry. Paul was given an apostolic mission to plant churches among the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. And as he went out and did that, we find in the New Testament that he gathered a whole team of people, co-workers who traveled with him and worked with him. He planted churches all the way across what we now call Turkey, all the way into Greece and present Albania, and eventually he went to Rome. As he planted churches, he did it in a unique way. He would go there with a group of people. He would begin to preach. He would form churches, or we might say embryonic churches of new believers, and then he would leave. Sometimes he would leave a few co-workers there. Other times they would all leave and go to another city. And then he would send people back to continue to teach and encourage the church. And at least with Timothy and Titus, we find that at points he sent them back and said, appoint elders in these churches. That is, these groups of people that were meeting together had grown together enough where some had risen up in their leadership in such a way that they were recognizable as those who ought to lead the churches. And that was part of Timothy's job. And so Paul writes this letter to help him to fulfill that kind of commission that he had and helping to plant churches. And much of the letter is encouragement about behavior and character that he ought to develop, even in this passage. He says, flee youthful passions, seek to live in an upright way, be an example of faith and love and peace. And he says, don't quarrel with people. And that one he expands on. And the reason he expands on it, it seems, is that living a Christian life and seeking to help the gospel to move forward almost inevitably brings you into conflict with people. 
And if, if you're the kind of person to whom, when you're attacked, you easily attack back, you're going to be drawn into quarrels. Even if you're not that kind of person, you're going to find people approaching you in such a way that, that will draw out not always the best parts of your character. And so he says, the man of God should not be quarrelsome, but should be able to teach, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now, we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, and the second to the last one is gentleness. And I want to remind you that we're talking about qualities that the Holy Spirit produces in a person who is following Christ. These are not, none of these, describing natural abilities that people have. And oftentimes when we describe a natural ability, such as gentleness, we're using it in a way that's someone diff somewhat different than the New Testament describes. Uh, for example, gentleness is not weakness, at least the gentleness that God wants to develop in us that it's talking about here, the kind of gentleness Jesus had is not weakness. And my mother used to have a saying, I remember, uh, she would describe someone, usually a man, she would say he was a gentle soul. And uh, I first thought that that was something positive, but as I grew up I realized she didn't mean that positively. When she said someone was a gentle soul, she really meant they're meek, they're too weak to really enter into life. She wasn't using it as a quality that she hoped her two sons would develop as they grew up. And uh, oftentimes, when we think of a person being gentle, the person in reality is too weak to enter strongly into life and to move into people's lives in a way that will help them, that will change them. And so a person who is this way often is someone who doesn't, isn't forceful at all, isn't pushy, doesn't uh, enter into conversations. He's the one who sits and watches and periodically agrees with people and so forth. And if he does enter in, you usually have the feeling what he's saying, though it's unspoken, is, I know I really don't have much to offer, and I'm not a very important person. I shouldn't be listened to, but have you thought of this? And they're always amazed if somebody says, that's really a good idea. Gentleness is not weakness, and some of what we think of as gentleness, in our culture at least, is weakness. Another thing gentleness is not, it's kind of related, but it's not fear. Some people do not um, push others, do not enter into conversations because they're afraid in some way. I remember <clears throat> my wife and I had four, brought four babies home from the hospital, and um, my wife is like a natural mother. She was raised by a natural mother, one of seven children. And I remember she brought our firstborn home, and there wasn't a skip in her step. She moved right into motherhood, nurtured this child, you know, cared for it in every way. I, on the other hand, there was a, a, a bit of a learning curve for me that I never got through completely because I am terrified of babies. <laughs> They're so weak. And I'm sure I'm going to break them somehow. And I was never comfortable with my own children even until they were a year or two old and I could throw them around a little bit and, you know, and, and know that they could handle it. Well, what I'm saying is that gentleness is not simply a fear of doing harm to another person. That's not only true physically, but I mean, it's also not a fear that something that you say might harm a person because if you have that kind of fear, you're going to always hold back saying almost anything unless you're absolutely certain that the person will receive it. 
It's also not a fear of failure, which is related. It, it, you know, sometimes people are gentle, or we think of them as gentle, but in reality, they don't want to try anything new because they're afraid that they'll fail. Well, that's not what it is. But what is gentleness? Well, again, it's the opposite of harshness and demandingness. We can understand that when Jesus said, I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We know that Jesus was saying, I am not harsh. I am not demanding. I don't browbeat people. That's not the way that I live. He said, I am gentle and humble in heart. And Paul tells Timothy that he, he shouldn't respond to pro, uh, being provoked with anger and defensiveness, which is so easy. Well, what is gentleness? First of all, it's used in the Bible as a term that's describing instruction. It's, it's the way that you relate to another person in which you're seeking to help them or to instruct them in some way. Obviously, that's true in, in what Jesus said. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. So he's using it in a context of being someone who wants to help us to learn to live in a certain way. And again, Paul says that Christians must be able to teach correcting our opponents with gentleness. So again, it's a term of instruction. And, and then we might say it's not only a term of instruction, but it is a quality that starts with a person where they are and takes them to where they need to be. It doesn't rush them through that. It doesn't browbeat them with it. It moves them along. Um, gentleness it seems, doesn't start with where you want the person to be or where you think they ought to be at this point in their lives. It starts with them where they are, and then it seeks to move them along. And of course, we do that with children. Uh, we, we know, if we're a parent, that a five-year-old doesn't always throw a temper tantrum, or at least every temper tantrum that he throws doesn't need to be responded to with strong discipline. They don't always need a time out on the stairs. They don't always need to have a a privilege uh, removed or something when they throw a tantrum because we know a child, a five-year-old, is learning to deal with the varying things that are going on inside of them. They don't know how to handle being hungry, being tired, and so they throw tantrums. And what we want to do is we want to help them move towards being able to handle that. And we realize that it's a very slow step-by-step -step process. We're not going to take them from being five to being 20 overnight. We're going to move them very slowly. Well, that's what gentleness is, the way it's used in the Bible. However, gentleness, as it's used to describe the fruit of the Spirit, gentleness is also an ability to move people along, to take them from where they are and move them forward towards where they need to be. But it's done in a, in a way that makes you an equal with them. So my use of an illustration about raising children might make you think gentleness is sort of condescending. But it's not condescending. You, you know what it's like if you feel someone is patronizing you or they're speaking down to you. It doesn't feel good, right? You don't usually respond well to that. Well, the kind of gentleness that God wants to produce in us is an ability to start with people where they're at and seek to move them along, but to do that in a way that makes us their peer, that we are working, moving with them. We are not dragging them, so to speak, towards where we want them to be. Now, how do I know that? I know it 
from Jesus' illustration. Again, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now, a yoke, by its very definition, is made for two animals. It's made with two sides to it. So they would yoke two oxen together so that the, the oxen can work in tandem together and plow the field or harvest the grain or whatever it is they're doing. That's the image Jesus used, and he calls it my yoke. Take my yoke upon you. And it seems that in the ancient world, they had a way of training an ox to take the yoke. It's a frightening thing to an animal to have some constraint put on it. And an ox, if you just put it in the yoke and it has, it's not used to it, it's going to do one of two things. It's either going to be so angry that it'll start to kick and, and try to throw the yoke off, and you're going to have a problem. Or it'll be so frightened that it will not do anything. It won't move no matter how hard you hit it. And it will just lay down in place. So what they would do is they would take a mother with one of her offspring and they would yoke them together. Now you don't start with an oxen when it's three months old. You wait until it's moving towards maturity during its first year or two when it, it reaches like 80% of its eventual size. It's, it's getting to be full grown, but it still is learning and it still is flexible, we might say. And then you have a yoke that is made on one side to shape to fit the mother, size to fit the mother, and on the other side, one size to fit her offspring. And you put them in the yoke together. And then the mother shows the child how to plow the field. There's natural trust between these animals. There's been a nurturing relationship. And the mother teaches the child that it's OK to be in the yoke, that you become useful, that you can work with the other animal that is next to you. And that's the image Jesus used. He calls it my yoke. Take my yoke upon you. He doesn't say take the yoke upon you that I will give to you. Take my yoke upon you. And what it's saying is that Jesus teaches us by getting beside us in this image and pulling with us, and he shows us what it means to live the Christian life, what it means to respond to people in the way that we should. I had an experience a number of years ago, about 17 years ago now, that stands out in my mind when I think of dealing with people in gentleness. This is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not something that's naturally produced. Uh, in 1997, I was with Gregor Menge in Albania, and he took me up in the mountains to a village, which is just a scattering of a few homes that are in the same area. He and some members of the church had gone up there, and they'd done on a Saturday a I think more than one Saturday, some children's meetings where they would gather the children of the village and they'd sing songs and play games and teach them about Jesus and so forth. And uh, in that, there had been four children from one family who had come, and he wanted to visit the parents. So we went up to this village, and he told me on the way there that the, the parents were Catholic. Now, I need to explain. In Albania, especially in the first few years after communism, Catholicism was like going back 100 years. They had no idea of relating to Protestants because there haven't been Protestants in the country. Uh, since the early 1800s, there was a small pocket of them in southern Albania. They haven't known how to deal with that, and they weren't even uh, aware of changes within the Catholic Church or anything like that. So he told me, the man's not going to be very open when we talk to him. And then as we 
entered the home, he said, why don't you open the conversation? <laughs> okay, thanks. So um, we sat with the man. I remember he was looking at, what a, looking at us with a not very inviting countenance, you know, and I, I don't even remember what I said. It was pretty lame, I'm sure, you know. <laughs> Hi, I'm from America, and uh, I, I don't know, but here's his first response. He leaned forward and he said, let me tell you the difference between us Catholics and you, whatever you are. We believe in Mary and the saints and you don't. So that was the starting point. Now, I was not Catholic. I didn't grow up Catholic. However, I took instruction when I was 19 in the Catholic faith from Father John Foglio at St. John's Student Chapel. And I married into a devoutly Catholic family. So I've had a lot of relationships with Catholics. And even though I never became a Catholic, I know some things about Catholicism. And uh, the fact is, however, if you cut me deeply, you'll find that what flows out is rich, red, reformed, Protestant blood. <laughs> and when someone says words like that to me, I had some thoughts that I might want to share with this person. But fortunately, Gregor stepped in, and I didn't, I didn't understand a word of Albanian at that point. I couldn't understand what he was talking about, but here's what I remember. For half an hour, we sat there, and Gregor spoke softly to this man. He would ask him questions, and the man would respond. And, and sometimes they would laugh together, and he kept talking, and I didn't know what he was saying, except the man's complete demeanor changed. And at the end of half an hour, he called his wife and seven children to come in the room, made them all kneel around the coffee table, and asked Gregor to pray for the family. Now, I only had to see that to realize that Gregor had this quality, spiritual quality, called gentleness in which he was able to start with the man where he was. And he didn't turn him into a born-again Christian in one conversation. He only moved him forward a little bit, but he moved him from being unaccepting of the messenger from someone who was not of his background to being accepting, even inviting, and asking the person to pray for him. You see, gentleness is a quality of being able to start with people where they are and move them forward by establishing a relationship with them. And that's what God allows us to do as we live for Jesus and we walk with him and he puts us in the yoke with him. We begin to pick up the qualities and bear the fruit of the Spirit. Well, this morning, I hope that you carry with you this sense of uh, God's presence and his peace that worship is meant to promote. Why don't you stand with me and I'll close in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, again we thank you for the fact that you invite us to come to you through your Son, Jesus Christ. And he says to us that he will become our guide, our teacher, the one who shows us how to live. And he does it in such a way that we are captured by his gentle and humble heart. And we might at times experience his firmness, his strength, but at the same time we always know that he is the one who has our best interests at heart. We pray that you would help us to be those kinds of people, but mostly we pray that you would keep us close to your son. Help us to bring our hearts to you and to worship you in spirit and truth, in such a way 
that we find ourselves exhibiting the qualities of the Spirit as an overflow of our love for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name.